Chapter 2. Conviction of Sin Since this God-begotten spiritual life in men is a mystery beyond human comprehension, we shall address the more practical consequences of the new birth. If we dwell upon the signs following and accompanying this miraculous new birth, then these are the things we must aim to see. First, regeneration is displayed in conviction of sin. We believe this to be an indispensable mark of the Spirit's work. One of the first effects of the new life as it enters the heart is intense inward pain in regards to sin. However, nowadays, we hear of people being healed before they've been wounded and being brought into a certainty of justification without ever having lamented their condemnation. We are very skeptical as to the value of such healings and views of justification because this style or methodology is not practiced according to the truth. God never clothes men until he has first stripped them, nor does he make them alive through the gospel until they are first slain by the law. When you meet with people in whom there is no trace of conviction of sin, you may be quite sure they haven't been guided or managed by the Holy Spirit. For when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, John 16, 8. When the Spirit of the Lord breathes on us, he withers all the glory of man like the flower of grass. Then he reveals a higher and abiding glory. Do not be astonished if you find this conviction of sin to be very acute and alarming. On the other hand, do not condemn those in whom it is less intense. For so long as sin is mourned over, confessed, forsaken, and abhorred, you have evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Much of the horror and unbelief which accompanies conviction is not of the Spirit of God. It comes from Satan or our own corrupt nature, yet there must be true and deep conviction of sin. This is what the preacher must labor to produce, because when this isn't felt, the new birth has not taken place. It is equally true that conversion may be recognized by the exhibition of a simple faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need me to speak to you about that, because you are already fully persuaded regarding the matter. Faith is the very center of the target at which you aim. Proof that a man's soul is one for Jesus is never evident until he has come to the end of himself and his own merits, and is drawn near to Christ. Great care must be taken that this faith is exercised upon Christ for a complete salvation, and not for a part of it. A number of people think the Lord Jesus is available for the pardon of past sin, but they can't trust him to keep them from the destruction in the future. They trust for years past, but not for years to come. Since Christ's work of salvation is never divided into parts like this in Scripture, either he bore all our sins or none, Quote, therefore he is able also to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 He either saves us once for all or not at all. His death can never be repeated, and so it must have made atonement for both the past and future sin of a believer. Otherwise they are lost, since no further atonement can be supposed while future sin is certain to be committed. 
Blessed be his name, and in him all that believeth are justified from all the things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Acts 13.39 Salvation by grace is eternal salvation. Sinners must commit their souls to the keeping of Christ for all eternity. How else are they saved? Sadly, according to the teaching of some, believers are only saved in part. To complete their salvation, they must depend on their own future endeavors. Is this the gospel? No. Genuine faith trusts a whole Christ for the whole of salvation. Is it any wonder that many converts fall away when, in fact, they were never taught to exercise faith in Jesus for eternal salvation, but only for temporal conversion? A faulty presentation of Christ brings about a faulty faith. When this languishes in its own weakness, who's to blame? According to their faith, so it is unto them. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. Matthew 9.29 Both the preacher and the possessor of a partial faith must bear the blame of the failure when their poor mutilated trust breaks down. I earnestly maintain this point because a semi-legal way of believing is so common and so wrong. We must urge the trembling sinner to trust completely and only upon the Lord Jesus forever, or we will have him implying he is to begin in the Spirit and be made perfect by the flesh. In other words, he will confidently walk by faith as it relates to the past, but then as to the future he will trust in his works. This faulty faith will be fatal. True faith in Jesus receives eternal life and sees perfect salvation in him whose one sacrifice has sanctified the people of God once for all. For he that is dead died unto sin once, and he that lives lives unto God. Romans 6.10 The sense of being saved, completely saved in Christ Jesus, is not, as some suppose, the source of fleshly security and the enemy of a holy zeal. It is, in fact, the direct opposite delivered from the fear which makes the salvation of self a more immediate object than salvation from self, and inspired by holy gratitude to his Redeemer, the regenerated man becomes capable of moral goodness and is filled with an enthusiasm for God's glory. While trembling under a sense of insecurity, a man gives his foremost thoughts to his own interests. But when planted firmly on the rock of ages, he possesses time and heart to voice the new song which the Lord has put in his mouth. Then his moral salvation is complete, for self is no longer the Lord of his being. Don't rest or feel content that the job is done until you see clear evidence in your converts of a simple, sincere, and decided faith in the Lord Jesus. Along with undivided faith in Jesus Christ, there must also be real repentance of sin. Repentance is an old-fashioned word, not much used by modern revivalists. Oh, said a minister to me one day, it only means a change of mind. This was thought to be a profound observation. Only a change of mind? But what a change! True repentance is a change of mind with regard to everything. Instead of saying it's only a change of mind, it seems more truthful to say it is a great and deep change, even the change of the mind itself. 
But whatever the literal Greek word may mean, repentance is no triviality. You won't find a better definition of it than the one given in the children's hymn. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. True conversion is joined by a sense of sin in all men, which we talked about under the topic of conviction. This sense of sin is also accompanied by a sorrow for sin or holy grief for having committed it and a hatred of sin which proves its dominion is ended. This includes a practical turning from sin which shows the life within the soul is directing the life on the outside. True belief and true repentance are twins. It would be futile to attempt to say which is born first. All the spokes of a wheel move at once when the wheel moves, and so all the graces are put into action when regeneration is produced by the Holy Spirit. However, there must be repentance. No sinner looks to the Savior with a dry eye or a hard heart. Therefore, aim at heartbreaking, at bringing home condemnation to the conscience and weaning the mind from sin. Don't be content until the whole mind is deeply and vitally changed in regard to sin. Another proof of winning a soul for Christ is in a real change of life. If a man doesn't live differently than how he did before, both at home and beyond the walls of his house, his repentance needs to be repented of, because his conversion is a fabrication. More than actions and language must change, for the spirit and temper must be changed. But, someone says, grace is often grafted on a seedling used as a stock. I know it is, but what's the fruit of the grafting? The fruit will be like the graft, and not take on the nature of the original stem. Another argues, but I have an awful temper, and all of a sudden it overcomes me. My fit of anger is soon over, and I feel a great sorrow of heart. Though I can't control myself, I'm quite sure I am a Christian. Not so fast, my friend, for I am quite as sure the other way. What's the use of your soon-cooling hot temper? If in the two or three moments it boils over, you scald all around you. If a man stabs me in a fury, it won't heal my wound to see him grieve over his madness. A hasty temper must be conquered. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Let not thy wrath in any wise cause you to become evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 8 and 9. The whole man must be renewed, or conversion will be questionable. As soul winners, we're not to hold up a modified standard of holiness before a people and say, you'll be all right if you reach the standard. Scripture says he that commits sin is of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. Remaining under the power of any known sin is a mark of your being the servants of sin. For his slaves ye are to whom ye obey, Romans 6.16. The boasts of a man who harbors the love of any transgression are ineffectual. 
He may feel what he likes and believe what he likes, but malignant bitterness is still in him. He is still in the bonds of iniquity while a single sin rules his heart and life. True regeneration implants a hatred of all evil. Where even a single sin is delighted in, the witness of the evidence is fatal to hope founded in truth. I'm read that sentence again. True regeneration implants a hatred of all evil. Where even a single sin is delighted in, the witness of the evidence is fatal to hope founded in truth. A man doesn't need to take a dozen poisons to destroy his life. One is quite sufficient. Harmony must exist between the life and the profession. A Christian professes to renounce sin. If he doesn't do so, his very name is a deception. A drunken man came up to Roland Hill one day and said, I am one of your converts, Mr. Hill. I suppose you are, the shrewd and sensible preacher replied, but you are not one of the Lord's or you wouldn't be drunk. We must practically test all our words in this way. In converts, we must also see true prayer, which is the vital breath of godliness. If there is no prayer, you may be quite sure the soul is dead. I'm not saying we're to urge men to pray as though it were the great gospel duty and the one set way of salvation. Our message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 30 and 31. It's easy to place a wrong emphasis on prayer and make it out to be a kind of work by which men are to live. I trust you will most carefully avoid doing this. Faith is the great gospel grace, but we must not forget that true faith always prays. When a man professes faith in the Lord Jesus and doesn't cry to the Lord daily, we dare not believe in his faith or conversion. The Holy Spirit's evidence by which he convinced Ananias of Paul's conversion was not, Behold, he talks loudly of his joys and feelings. But, behold, he prays, Acts 9.11. And that prayer was earnest, heartbroken confession and supplication. Oh, to see this sure evidence in all who profess to be our converts. There must also be a willingness to obey the Lord in all his commandments. It's a shameful thing for a man to agree to discipleship and then refuse to learn his Lord's will regarding certain points or even dare to spurn obedience when that will is known. How can a man be a disciple of Christ when he openly lives in disobedience to him? If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows his Lord's will but doesn't intend to heed his will, you are not to pamper his impertinence. Instead, it's your responsibility to assure him that he is not saved. Didn't the Lord say, And he that does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me? In Matthew 10.38 Mistakes as to what the Lord's will may be are to be tenderly corrected. But anything like willful disobedience is serious, and to tolerate it would be betrayal to him who sent us. Jesus must be received as king as well as priest. Where there is any hesitancy about this, the foundation of godliness is not yet laid. Faith 
must obey her Maker's will, as well as trust his grace. A pardoning God is jealous still for his own holiness. You see, to this extent, the signs which prove a soul is one are by no means insignificant, and the work to be done before those signs can exist isn't to be taken lightly. A soul winner can do nothing without God. He must throw himself on the invisible or be a laughing stock to the devil, for the devil regards all who think they can subdue human nature with mere words and arguments with complete disdain. To all who hope to succeed in such an effort by their own strength, we refer to the words of the Lord to Job. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or with the cord which thou lettest down on his tongue? Canst thou put a hook in his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee that thou shalt make him for his slave forever? Will thou play with him as with a bird, or will thou tie him up for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou cut his skin with knives, or his head with a fish spear? Lay thine hand upon him, thou shalt remember the battle and do no more. Behold, your hope regarding him shall fail, for even at the sight of him they shall faint. Job 41, 1-9 Dependence upon God is our strength and our joy. In that dependence, let's go forth and seek to win souls for him. In the course of our ministry, we will meet with many failures in this matter of soul winning. In the course of my ministry, I've thought I caught numerous birds and even managed to put salt on their tails, only to see them fly off after all. One man I will call Tom Careless was the terror of the village in which he lived. Several incendiary fires in the region were attributed to him by most people. Sometimes he'd be drunk for two or three weeks at a spell, and during those times he raved and raged like a madman. That man came to hear me. I'll never forget the commotion that stirred through the little chapel when he walked in. He sat there and fell in love with me. I think that was the only conversion he experienced, but he professed to be converted. He had apparently been the subject of genuine repentance. Outwardly, he became quite a changed man. He gave up drinking and swearing, and in many respects was an exemplary individual. I recall seeing him tugging a barge with perhaps a hundred people on board. He was drawing them to a place where I was going to preach. He gloried in the work, singing as gladly and happily as any one of them. If anybody spoke a word against the Lord or his servant, he didn't hesitate a moment to knock him down. Before I left the district, I feared there was no real work of grace in him. He was a wild sort of man. I'd even heard that he'd taken a bird, plucked it, and ate it raw in the field. This isn't the act of a Christian man displaying decent behavior or someone with a good reputation. After I left the neighborhood, I asked about him. Unfortunately, I heard nothing good. The spirit that kept him outwardly right was gone, and he became worse than ever, if that was possible. He certainly wasn't any better, and he was unreachable by any means. 
The point is that the work of mine didn't stand the test of fire. You see, after the person who had influence over the man, me, was gone, he couldn't bear up against even ordinary temptation. When you move from the village or town where you've been preaching, it's very likely that some who appeared to run well will go back to their old ways. They have a fondness for you, and your words have a kind of mesmerizing influence over them. But when you're gone, the dog returns unto his own vomit, and the sow that was washed in her wallowing in the mire. Don't be in a hurry to count these supposed converts. Don't take them into the church too soon, and don't be too proud of their enthusiasm if it isn't accompanied with some degree of softening and tenderness to show that the Holy Spirit has really been at work within them. I remember another case of quite a different sort. This person I will call Miss Mary Shallow, for she was a young lady never blessed with much sense. She lived in the same house as several Christian young ladies, and she professed to be converted. When I talked with her, she had all the answers one could wish for. I even thought of recommending her to the church, but it was determined best to give her a little trial time first. After a while, she left the company of those Christian ladies where she had lived and went to a place where she had no such fellowship to help her. I never heard anything more of her, except that she spent all her time thinking about her outward appearance, dressing as smartly as she could and pursuing opportunities to be with fine society. She is a type of those who lack mental furnishings like knowledge or ideas. If the grace of God doesn't take possession of the empty space, they very soon go back into the world. I have also known several like a young man whom I will call Charlie Clever, uncommonly clever fellows at anything and everything, including faking religion. They pray very fluently, tried to preach, and did it very well. Whatever they did, they did it nonchalantly, and it came easy. Don't be in a hurry to take such people into the church. They haven't known humiliation on account of sin, haven't experienced brokenness of heart nor do they have a sense of divine grace. They shout all as perfect and bright, and away they go. You'll find that they never repay you for your labor and trouble. These clever sorts are also able to use the language of God's people as well as the best of his saints. They even talk about their doubts and fears and can stir up a deep emotional experience in five minutes. However, they are a little too clever and likely to do much harm when they get into the church. So be diligent and keep them out if you possibly can. I remember another man who was very pious in his talk. I'll call him John Fairspeech. Oh, how craftily he could act the hypocrite. He'd get among our young men and lead them into all manner of sin and iniquity. And yet he would come to see me and hold half an hour's spiritual conversation a detestable rogue living in open sin at, ever, at the very time he sought to come to the Lord's table, join our societies, and was anxious to take a leading role in every good work. Keep your eyes open for changes. This crafty sort will come to you with money in their hands, like Peter's fish with the silver in his mouth, and they will appear to be so helpful in the work. They speak softly and are such perfect gentlemen. Yes, I believe Judas was a man exactly of this kind, very clever at deceiving those around him. 
we must pay attention that we don't get any of these into the church if there is any way we can keep them out. At the close of a service, you may say to yourself, here's a splendid haul of fish. Wait a bit. Remember our Savior's words. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind of fish. Matthew 13:47. Don't number your fish before they're broiled, nor count your converts before you have tested and tried them. This process may make your work somewhat slow, but it will be sure. Do your work steadily and well so those who come after you won't have to say it was far more trouble to them to clear the church of those who ought never have been admitted than it was for you to admit them. If God enables you to build 3,000 bricks into his spiritual temple in one day, you may do it, but Peter has been the only bricklayer who has accomplished that feat up to the present. Don't go and paint the wooden wall to make it look like solid stone, but instead, let your building be real, substantial, and true, for only this kind of work is worth doing. Let all your building for God be like that of the Apostle Paul. According to the grace of God which is given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds upon it. But let each one see how the building is built. For no one can lay another foundation than that laid, which is Jesus the Christ. Now if anyone builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, the work of each one shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. The work of each one, whatever sort it is, the fire shall put it to the test. If the work of anyone abides which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If anyone's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15